Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 126. What if actually this is the result of us trying to cope with being in a, in a system and in communities that make us hate ourselves? Julie Rogers is a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion for LGBTQ people in Christian communities. She played a significant role in shutting down Exodus International, the largest conversion therapy organization in the world. And she was also the first openly gay person to be hired by an evangelical Christian college. And then she was fired. (laughs) She's featured in Pray Away, a documentary about the movement to pray the gay away, which is executive produced by Ryan Murphy and is coming to Netflix this fall. We talk about that a little bit here in this episode. Uh, Her writing has been featured in Sojourners, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Time. She just released a brand new memoir a couple weeks ago called Out Love, a queer Christian survival story. And and it's pretty amazing. You know, I've been following Julie's work since I got into this work a long time ago. I I think Julie was actually one of the first people I ran across who was doing this work back when she was doing like, you can be gay as long as you stay celibate kind of work. And it's been really neat to follow her journey and to see how her journey has mirrored so many of our journeys. Um, I'll speak for myself, my journey (laughs) in, in becoming fully affirming of LGBTQ people. Her story is hard to hear, hard to read, but, but also pulls back the curtain on what actually kind of happens in those closed door rooms in evangelical spaces. When talking about LGBTQ people, Julie was there for so many of these conversations and, and she's just kind of exposing the system for what it is and it's not good. Just a heads up, this episode does contain descriptions of suicidal ideation, self-harm, and eating disorders. And no announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Julie, hi, welcome. Matthias, hi. Oh, I just like this. I know I was telling you earlier, but this is like a dream come true to have you on on the show. So I'm just thrilled for this conversation. (laughs) I'm so excited. It's been such a long time coming. And this is just like such a fantastic, wonderful time to be in this with you. And thank you so much for having me. I, I want you to know I am in an all gender restroom right now with the lights off. (laughs) <laughs> and it's, I just feel like so delighted that it's you I'm talking to in the situation because it could be really mm. awkward and creepy if it were somebody else. <laughs> that feels true. That does feel true. <laughs> <laughs> well, to start, the question I ask everyone, how do you identify and how has your faith helped form that identity? I identify as lesbian, queer, Christian, a cat mom, and my faith has my faith has informed that identity in that 
it has led to a sort of, it created such, there was such tension, I think, growing up at that intersection of knowing I was gay and Christian, and at that time, like conservative evangelical, that it really made me do so much work around my faith, so much theological work that I never, ever would have done, and then therapy, and then like emotional work that I wouldn't have done if I had just been like, oh, I'm gay and that's like great. Or like, oh, I'm Christian and like evangelical and fit into this sort of like suburban megachurch, you know, seamlessly. And I think it created in me a deep sense of compassion and a sense of like a little bit of a darkness almost of just like knowing what it looks like to suffer and knowing what it feels like to to really have known sorrow in such a significant way. And so I think it's it's led to a more nuanced faith, a more nuanced way of showing up in the world with a capacity for complexity that I might not have had if I didn't grow up at this particular intersection that, that initially felt like a conflict. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So I, I just finished reading your new book, Out Love, which congratulations, by the way, like huge to have it come out and be out in the world now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and and I, you know, one of the one of the first things that really stuck out to me was that I mean, I've known you and known of you for qu- quite a while in this space, and and I think I had this assumption of you that there wasn't really a conflict in your early years, <laughs> like that, that you were this kind of ex-gay, fully sold out on this. And, and I, I mean, you almost immediately in the book start to show that, that there actually was a massive conflict in, in kind of, in some ways, buying into this ex-gay theology. I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I came out when I was 16 years old. I was in... Uh, my my family was very, very conservative, politically, theologically, and it was in Texas. And when I came out, I honestly felt like I had hidden it for several years because I knew my family wouldn't respond well to it. But I also felt internally like a sense of peace uh, with myself and with God, because I had always grown up believing like God, God sees me and God loves me. And I know that if Jesus... Like, I love that Jesus was always drawn toward those who were sort of ostracized and alienated. I love that Jesus was drawn toward women, people who were sick, like people who weren't necessarily embraced by their communities. So I always kind of felt like if Jesus lived in my neighborhood, like Jesus would want to be my friend. You know, that persisted for me even once I realized I was gay and that my family would think I was like disgusting. And that led to a lot of emotional and psychological trauma but it didn't lead to issues with my faith. So when I came out at the age of 16 and um, my mom, one week later, took me to go meet with a guy named Ricky Shillette, who's the executive director of Living Hope Ministries, which is still thriving today in the in uh, in Texas. And they they also go by Lyft. They've got like some satellite ministries all over uh, the country. And she took me there. I didn't want to, I didn't want to meet with him. I didn't want to change. I wasn't interested in what he had to say. And at the same time, I was 16 years old. I knew I still had two more years in my parents' house. And 
I couldn't imagine like packing up my backpack and going to show up at the LGBT Youth Resource Center downtown. Like that just, that did not feel like a viable option. I couldn't imagine it. And so I started meeting with Ricky and I found that like, it was nice to feel like I mattered to somebody. Like he was interested in me. He asked me questions about like my crushes and like what was going on at school. And it was kind of like, it felt nice to feel the sense of like, belonging somewhere, even if he like, you know, thought that being gay was sinful. It was more of a connection than I had felt in most Christian settings. And so I ended up deciding like, well, I might as well just try this because at least like it creates a sense of peace at home. And I don't really have anything I thought at the time, I don't really have anything to lose by just like giving this a shot. And so, I mean, so you, you started out there and then fairly quickly you became like the poster child <laughs> of of like these massive ex-gay movements that were that were thriving in that time period. I, I mean how did how did that happen? It was so ridiculous. Looking back, I <laughs> I feel so appalled uh that leaders in my community let this happen. Um, because there's a certain point at which I definitely take on responsibility and I'm happy to own what's mine. And sure. when I was 17 years old, six months after being involved at Living Hope, Ricky asked me to give my testimony for their donor banquet. And I was like, Ricky, I don't really know what my testimony is. Like, I don't really know that I'm like ex-gay yet. And he was like, oh, well, I can help you craft that. And, you know, in that process of sort of, and, and you see in the book how this happens over the years of him, like coaching me and telling me, I think you need to incorporate this. I think you need to exclude this. I think you need to emphasize this part of your life and like taking the details of my life that can, that don't necessarily in themselves create meaning, but weaving them together in a way that reinforces their truly like false and egregious narratives about why people end up being gay, um, weaving those together for me at the age of 17, while I'm still developing, while I haven't gone to college, still living my parents' roof. And then that was really well received by their donors. And then uh, he sort of took me on the road with him and had me giving my testimony whenever he would speak at churches and seminaries around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And it was it was a way in which I felt like, like seen and celebrated and supported. And so I think even though at first I felt really like shy and had concerns about it, I felt initially like, wow, this, I get to be good. Like these religious leaders are like applauding me and saying that I'm good. And, and that felt, it met such a deep need in my life. And for those first several years uh, felt like something that it became something I kind of couldn't live without since it was such a counter to the deep shame that I had felt growing up in the, in the context I'd grown up in. That feels like such an important recognition in some ways, at least, at least what you're talking about, because, because as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own experience kind of coming out in some ways in, in very conservative contexts and in very quickly recognizing if I were to speak a certain way, use the right words, tell my story the right way, then almost those feelings of alienation of like, I don't fit in can quickly turn into like, well, I can fit in in this way. 
Totally. Like, I can be accepted in this way and, and people will actually maybe love me. Yeah. Totally. It, it feels, you know, looking back, it feels so insidious, but in, in the moment it was, I mean, I felt like I was becoming part of a community. We can't underestimate that. Yeah. It, yeah. It met some deep emotional needs to feel like I had carved out myself a way to belong. Mm-hmm. 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 So you're finding belonging by kind of, I mean, I think even one of the words you used in the book was, was parroting a, a narrative. And then at the same time, I, I hear in your book, you're starting to recognize or ask these questions of what is actually going on here? I mean, looking back on that now, what was going on there? You know, I, what started it for me was around the time I was graduating college, I started encountering friends who had left Living Hope, the ministry, and, I, and some of them had gone on to like fully affirming communities and we're, we're starting, I was starting to see like, huh, like maybe they're actually healthier on the other side, but many of them disappeared because they were, they got, they started engaging in patterns of like repression, repression, suppression, and then like binge. And in those binges, maybe start, maybe tried meth. And then once they started meth, got hooked. And I ran into, I, like, I knew like a, significant number of people, like an alarming number of people who got addicted to meth, ended up getting a lot of different STIs, STDs, like it was just high risk behavior. And at first, you know, I kind of like believed the narrative that people like Ricky and, and leaders and ex-gay ministries would say about them that like, that's the gay lifestyle. This is what happens. It's debaucherous. It's destructive. But over time, I began to see this pattern. And I was like, I, I actually think it's it, like, what if actually this is the result of us trying to cope with being in a, in a system and in communities that make us hate ourselves? And eventually I began to see, like, I was self-harming. I started self-harming pretty early on in those ministries. And then I had a, a pretty serious eating disorder during that time. And I think for a long time I thought like, oh, this is because I'm like, so broken and this is because i'm like so messed up so i'm doing these like ridiculous things and then eventually i began to be like wait no actually maybe this is happening because i'm in this community that makes me hate myself and hate my body and i'm like taking it out on myself in these ways and once i began to see that i knew i cannot be a part of something that's causing harm i cannot be a part of any teaching narrative system that is causing suffering, especially for very vulnerable people. And so that was what really moved me and pushed me over the edge to do the very uncomfortable thing for this Enneagram nine and create conflict around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do start creating conflict around it, but, but at the same time, and this is something that also so deeply resonated with me is it seems like you still held this like Im- implicit kind of trust in the system like 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 these leaders are not going to lead me astray like and, i mean you know eventually because of where you are now and then you outline this in your book like that shifts but but i wonder if you could even speak to some of that impulse of still trusting that the leadership has your best interests at heart 
in this evangelical system? Yeah, I think, you know, in evangelical systems, leaders are given like just rampant authority because we ultimately believe that our authority is God who communicated God's self through the scriptures. And so we would say the Bible is our authority, but like, obviously the Bible can be interpreted in countless different ways. It was written over 2000 years ago in a vastly different context. And it's, it's hard to figure out what it means for us today. And that's why we have over 90,000 denominations in the United States alone. So when we choose to follow, when we choose to sort of place ourselves under the leadership of this particular evangelical church or Baptist church or Methodist church, we're essentially giving them the power to, to say to us, like, this is how we interpret this and this is what this text means. And evangelicalism in particular, because of their, some of the dynamics around men being in leadership and men being God's chosen vessel and particularly straight men. And in my context, very straight white men, it was like, there was a certain sort of narrative that was just presented as ultimate truth. And any people who questioned that, like if you questioned what John Piper had to say and what Matt Chandler from the village church was you know, repeating in a trendier way. Like if you question that, you were just bad and wrong and immoral and sinful. And if you questioned it too far to the point of saying, I'm going to come out as queer, then you were formally excommunicated from the church. So it's, it's really hard to survive in those circles and not trust those leaders if you aren't somebody who is straight and Republican and, you know, ideally married and has a few kids. Like if you're, if you're not on that track, it's a really hard place to, to survive. I'm curious if, if, you know, when, when you think back to you know, yourself in those moments of where, of where you know, in, in one hand you're giving, you're being given access to platform, some semblance of influence in, you know, these closed doors meetings with evangelical leaders and, you know, so on and so forth. And at the same time, I mean, as you recognize later, that there is a system being played out. Like, I, I wonder what, this may be a strange question, but I wonder what your body felt in those moments. Like, like I get this sense from reading that, that there's almost this these two stories being played out, the, the one in your head and the one in your body. Mm-hmm. That'd be fair or, or not? Absolutely. My body, I, I think I learned very on in sort of ex-gay ministries or conversion therapy that the only way to like move forward and survive was to just completely detach from my body and shut down and not listen to anything it had to tell me. And that also meant to not like sort of receive the, to not be able to like treat myself with kindness, to not receive any sort of, it it kept me from being soft. It kept me from being empathetic. There were many ways in which I, the sort of fragmentation I had to do to remain in those communities took a toll on my body. And I remember in those meetings in particular, whether it was at Wheaton College, you know, with or with like bosses or with like religious leaders at religious freedom roundtables or whatever, just feeling a tightness in my chest, a 
um, very self-conscious about policing my mannerisms so that I wouldn't seem too gay for them. Very like having to walk this perfect line of being kind of gay, but also relatable and also warm and also like feminine enough to be, to not be like disgusting. I mean, it's just, it's the, the sort of like gymnastics that I did to try to maintain any sort of like credibility in those circles was completely exhausting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that started playing out. Like, like I, I feel like so many queer people <laughs> go th- go through this process, and 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 I, mean, I know you you went through it on a very large scale, of then watching how it plays out, of of the way you're being impacted, the way your body is being impacted, it, almost the sense of it's it's never enough. I mean, is that a fair way of describing it? Like it, it was never yeah. enough. Yeah, absolutely. When I think I kept thinking that these evangelicals were on a path toward more acceptance of us and toward more empathy and maybe letting us into greater levels of leadership and like weighing our feedback, you know, giving us more weight. And it wasn't until I realized that, that they weren't, that this might've been as far as I was going to get. And that then I was going to be, they were going to break me down and sort of like, try to turn me into something that they managed to manage their image. Like that was when I was like, Oh, this is untenable. And, and ultimately like, this is actually really harmful for me and my people. Uh, if they're, if the direction we're moving isn't toward more full, uh, inclusion of us. I know you tell these stories in your book, and, and so I, I don't want you to be like, <laughs> like give away all the stories. But I'm curious, like there were some moments where that really hit kind of a, a breaking point, especially around when you were at Wheaton, which, which like from, from my, my perspective, you know, watching you get hired at Wheaton, like it, it seemed in, in the, in the queer community, there was such an energy around like, things are changing. Like, like, look, we in hired Julie Rogers, like the first celibate queer person <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to be in a position of leadership in a big evangelical institution. Like it was so hopeful. And yet there was a lot of things happening in behind closed doors that are, are devastating to read about. Yeah. And I remember us uh, talking to some people as it was happening and saying like, you know, I felt hopeful. I thought things were changing, but this is what the reality is. And they're, you know, I'm, I'm facing incredible discrimination, inappropriate lines of questioning, um, insistence that I, you know, write a personal statement about my sexuality that they can send to critics that they're going to weigh in on and want me to say I'm open to healing and marrying a man, which I wasn't. And, you know, like just these, it was a continual back and forth. It was such an exhausting battle. And I had some people in my life and I wondered this at times saying, this can't, if you, if you resign, if you come out and talk about this, it's going to send it back. Like this was such a big step forward. You have to succeed in this role. Other Christian colleges are talking about hiring a gay person as well. And if this goes badly, they're not going to do that. And there was this real sense of pressure, pressure that like, I need to endure this and come out on the other side so that there can be this tipping point, which I thought about and which is why I stayed for the, you know, well, I probably stayed for, I actually stayed for the year for the students. But 
at the end of it all, I was just like, you know what? Like, this is wrong. This is wrong. And this is coming at such an incredible cost that I don't want any other queer person to be hired at another institution if this is what they have to go through. And so I would rather go ahead and come out and let tell the truth about what this is like right now and have um, and then, you know, evangelicals can decide they want to adjust and decide to do a better job or that they're going to double down. And I want queer people to know not to go into those spaces because uh, they're not safe for us. And it it just, you know, ultimately it came at a great cost. But, how, you know, what would it have cost to have stayed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is so much for like one person to hold and, and navigate. And I realize like this happens to so many different people. Yeah, <laughs> so in so many different many ways. Of us. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, these stories of I mean, whether it is you know Wheaton <laughs> or you know just in in local churches, it, those kind of fingers of the system feel so ever present. If you're going to be part of the church, it has to look this way, and there's not actual freedom for queer people in, in, in there. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think that's the question of, you know, people often ask, well, should I stay in non-affirming communities and try to change it or should I leave? And I'm like, you know, I, I, I can't answer that question for anybody. Nobody should answer that. Like we should all tune into who we are and where we are and what's going to lead to flourishing. I think in those communities, I would say if you're enduring something that's causing harm and that a place where you can't thrive and hope that they're moving, like it's like marrying somebody and hope that they're going to become like this kind of person. Like, don't marry that person. Like (laughs) you're in the church you're in and that's how they are right now. You're marrying the person you're marrying and you need to assume that they're going to be that way for the rest of their lives. And if you can't, you can't enter into these relationships uh, with the assumption that they're going to be somewhere that they're currently not. It's nice to stay to to enter into any of those relationships for good reasons, and then be pleasantly surprised when people grow and evolve. But if you're suffering and these are breaking you down, and you're not supported, and they're emotionally depleting, like gosh, well then why don't there's so many churches and so many communities where they they truly will enthusiastically, wholeheartedly embrace us and celebrate us, go to those. Go to those. Like, let yourself be nurtured for a while. Let yourself just be nourished. And those people, if they're open at all, will still be open to receiving and learning from you on the other side of that move. And they'll respect you for having um, been gentle with yourself and giving yourself the care that you needed. Have you heard something on Queerology that's made a big impact on your life? Do you now follow one of my guests because you've met them here? Because of the format of Queerology, you get to meet people in a way that lets you relate and connect. There's something uniquely personal and intimate about the conversations that happen here. If this is something you've experienced, then help me keep these conversations going by making a financial gift and becoming a Queerology active listener. You'll get access to the active listeners Facebook group right away, a place for all of us to continue these conversations throughout the week. All you need to do is jump over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Choose your gift amount, and you'll be an active listener. It's really easy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Matthias Roberts. I really look forward to meeting you in the Facebook group. 
was it difficult for you, Julie, as you started to lean more into these spaces that could actually provide you a, a deeper level of nourishment? And I, I say deeper level because in some ways, like these communities were providing you nourishment. I think that's some of the bind you were in. But as you leaned into these, these, these like true nourishment, was it hard to open yourself up to that? Like, for me, it was. <laughs> I'm curious, like, I mean, all those internalized messages of I don't deserve, I'm I'm unworthy of this. Hmm. I w- it didn't feel hard to receive it. I think I was just so exhausted by the time I got to them that I was like, and, and, and a little bit cynical and just like, gosh, like all my most earnest years were spent following and believing really manipulative leaders. And so it's so hard to enter, re-enter this kind of space with enthusiasm and with openness. And so I think that's been the bigger challenge is like letting myself still really receive and delight in the beauty of these messages and the beauty of these faith communities when I experienced the underbelly of so many before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you haven't left faith. I am curious what your faith looks like now. I'm really moved by any faith community that's going to nurture a spirit of generosity, that's going to be a place where I can give and receive forgiveness that is going to be a part of a work for restoration in our sad and like um, fragmented world that's gonna see justice. I'm interested in, I'm moved by a message of grace. And so to the extent that I see that happening in various faith communities, and I feel like a religious community can be a resource for me in that process of becoming, uh, then I want to be a part of it. And to the extent that a faith community closes me off, shuts me down, um, gives me a sense of superiority or certainty, or, you know, tells me what to think about those people who aren't in it, that I don't want to be a part of those communities. So it's really just about like whether or not, like the fruit of the teaching and the fruit of that, that uh, a community. And I'm less interested in dogma. I am much, I have much more room for mystery And I'm really interested in the question of how this, whether or not a community is causing harm or leading to flourishing. So you also have this documentary coming out later this year on on Netflix, Pray Away, which just just premiered in New York City. Um, Walking through some of, which I haven't seen it, so I don't fully know what it's about, but but, but with the like conversion therapy and, and the harms of conversion therapy that, that is still happening in the United States. I mean, you mentioned that the ministry you were part of is still in some ways f- flourishing. I'm curious if you could kind of talk about how you know that is still a present reality in our world. Yeah, so I I regularly hear from people who are in Living Hope they're often 21, 22 year olds. They're being told that the same messages, their stories are being weaponized and used. You know, our brains are still developing toward 26 years old. So it's, it's so irresponsible to take a 21, 22 year old and have them sharing a quote unquote story of 
healing from their same sex attractions. And it's like rinse, repeat the same things they were doing with me. They do today. And so these same people that reach out to me often, you know, share with me on separate nights that they had to reach out to uh, the Trevor project on a really hard night um, to their suicide crisis line. And they tell me they're self-harming and they tell me they want to leave, but they just can't imagine losing everyone they've ever known and loved. They don't know how they would be financially independent. And so, you know, people ask me a lot of times like, well, you know, do what do I think of Ricky and what do I think of these leaders? And I think these people, someone like Ricky deserves to be seen as a complex human being who has probably like really mixed motives and intentions. And I can have some compassion for him on an interpersonal level, but since he is still leading living hope. And since he's still in churches teaching devastating false narratives about LGBTQ youth to parents who are then going to push those messages onto their vulnerable children, like because he's still doing this work, I have to lean more toward accountability than compassion for him as a human, for him personally. And I think like What's what's interesting about Pray Away? So Pray Away is incredible. It I can't wait for all of you to see it on Netflix early in early August. It focuses more on former leaders of the movement of sort of ex gay ministries, Exodus International, and it's leaders who will say, like, we were lying, we were we were lying, we were wrong. This is harmful, and it needs to end. And it really, and, and I'm sort of like the survivor story thread throughout, even though there are times at which I lad, I straddle the line of like, you know, young leadership as well. And so it kind of gets into all those nuances of how people end up into leadership in those circles. And it's a very nuanced film. And also it lays bare just the dark side of how exactly these messages continue, continue to be propagated in these circles and it really shows it shows the continuation of this moment and show this movement and shows that as long as anti-LGBTQ teaching and beliefs exist, there will be some version of conversion therapy and some effort to change uh, to tell queer people that we have to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I talk to so many people, especially folks who live on the coast. So I mean, it happens a lot here in, here in Seattle. Uh, people who don't who are shocked when they hear that that's still happening <laughs> yeah. in, in parts of the country. Like when Boy Erased came out, like people hear being like, well, this doesn't actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, but Capital One has like a, a rainbow flag outside. Like, eh, yeah, there's a big disconnect, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is almost an impossible question to answer, but, but like, what do you see as some of that that disconnect, um, especially for those of us who kind of sit in, you know, more liberal spaces now. <laughs> you know, I think it's I think it's several things. One, there's a lack of nuance of understanding in these more liberal spaces. There's um, there's a sense of like, oh, because like Ellen had a talk show, and because like we had, you know, um, Will and Grace, and now we've got like Queer Eye in these shows. Like, obviously. Uh, we've we've come a long way. And that's just like, that's not very nuanced. I think on the other hand, though, those of us who are queer in those settings, we're often, you know, if we're at a cocktail party or a picnic or a t-ball game, we're not unpacking our baggage. 
we're not telling them that many of us are alienated from our families or that if we are in touch that they they believe that we're sinning and uh, we're not telling them that you know we went through we experienced suicidal ideation and self-harmed all throughout our youth like so I think there's a real sense in which people think we're all just like fine because we we show up at parties and we're fun and we're happy and we are, you know, and it's it's way better than it was before. And also that doesn't negate the trauma that we came from. And it definitely doesn't negate the trauma that many are currently in that they haven't yet been able to escape. And so I think that's one of the reasons it's so important that like we do the work we're doing now. Not everybody has to do that, but I think it's important that some of us are doing it to let people know like, hey, this is happening. This is the reality. This is what's going on on the ground, folks. And so like we we can celebrate how far we've come for sure. And we need to like also be using our our influence and our resources and our time and energy and relationships wherever we are to uh, make sure that to make the world safer for LGBTQ people who aren't aren't currently in those safe spaces where they feel free to to fully be themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just said like this isn't work that everyone needs to do, and and that that brings to mind even like th- this conversation happening between us. That idea of I think you were one of the first people I reached out to when I started Queerology like four years ago. And you, you're, I don't remember exactly what your response was, but it was something along the lines of like, I, I'm not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Like, like this isn't the time. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm curious, even as you know, queer folks who have experienced a level of trauma, significant trauma, that balance of I think some of us want to do this work, but are also still healing. I mean, how did you kind of navigate that to get to a point of where you even could, you know, write a book like this, have this conversation. I mean, it it certainly wasn't immediate. Mm, That's a great question. You know, I, so it was about six years ago that I sort of left that universe and I, I mostly went dark on in public. I haven't been speaking since then. I post a lot about my cats and I got involved in the community. I start, you know, I started dating my now wife, Amanda, and I did many years of therapy. And at some point I started writing the book out love, um, in the privacy of my own computer where I could just like unload all my thoughts and feelings without necessarily feeling like I have to do this or this has to become a book. And then at a certain point, probably like two years ago, four years into that process of, of healing and growth and telling myself, like, I can go work at like Coca-Cola if I want, or like <laughs> the Trevor Project, or I could go, you know, I can, I don't need to do this. I kind of felt a sense of like, I lived at this really weird time at this, in this really interesting intersection. And I, I knew hundreds, probably well over a thousand queer Christians in these different spaces and I feel some sense of responsibility to tell people what I saw and, and to, to just sort of like report back like letters from, from the field to, to hopefully move some people so that queer people in those, in those circles now uh, might, might have it a little bit gentler and might be received with a little more compassion, understanding, and honestly, wholehearted acceptance, not just a little more compassion. 
And so it felt like the right time, but I gave myself permission to never do any of that. And I think if I had tried to press through and like do advocacy work along the way when I needed to be healing, I think that I would have been using those talks or, you know, like whatever following that I was like nurturing, I think I might've been using that for my own healing more than for their good. And I've always felt a sense of responsibility to, to do what I need to do to be a healthy person showing up to those spaces uh, so that it can be for them and a gift for them and not, not about me. Because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think there is an impulse. I mean, I've noticed it in myself to jump in and say, well, now I have to go and save everyone. Like, because this is my story, because I've had this trauma, it's almost a responsibility, a sense of like, I I have to help other people. And and I think what I'm hearing you say is something along the lines of, you know, it's it's actually okay to step away and, and not do that. Yeah. It's actually really important and healthy. I think it's, I think it's really beautiful and meaningful when some of us decide that we want to like step into that space and are uniquely like equipped to do that. And also we should all feel a sense of freedom to, to go live our lives and to go love our people and to do the things that we're created to do, the things that bring us to life and nourish the people around us. And for some that might be advocacy work, in LGBTQ spaces or in faith spaces, but probably for most of us, it won't be. I don't think, I'm not gonna be doing this the rest of my life. I think it was important to have these conversations, but I fully expect to, for my next, you know, for things I do after this, to be an extension of who I am now and where I am now and to be very different because it's not, that's not a world that we don't, none of, we don't need to like stay rooted in our trauma for for our, our adult lives like we deserve to just like go thrive yeah yeah and that feels like a really great place to then jump to like the the happy ending which is not a spoiler <laughs> by any means but the happy ending of your story of meeting amanda getting married like like the way you have found flourishing would love for you to share a little bit about that. It's been, it's been so healing to, um, to be, Amanda's amazing. I married an amazing, like incredible person. And I couldn't, I, I completely underestimated how much baggage I was bringing into marriage. I had no idea. And the only reason that like, we have a healthy relationship that's thriving is because like she's been so incredibly patient and we've both been in therapy and we've done so much work to really communicate well and show up as our whole selves and love each other well. But it is hard with both of us having come from these traumatic backgrounds um, where we weren't able to, you know, go through dating out in the open and learn these big things about relationships in a community. So I do want to say like, it's, it's, it's definitely, we've had to do, we've had to do a lot of work. And at the same time, uh, that's also part of what makes it so beautiful. You know, we, we've built something really beautiful together and we've done that in community with like a chosen family that, that really sees us and really just delights in us and knows us. And our neighbors this last year, Um, during the pandemic asked us to be uh, godmoms to their kid 
and there are their little boys, Leo and Sly. And we were just like weeping um, because, you know, like I, I, I say in the book, when I came out when I was 16, my oldest brother was like, I hope you don't choose to be gay because like you won't be able to come around my kids. And like that stuck with me all these years and it made it that much more meaningful and beautiful and healing when somebody said like, oh no, I choose you. Like I want to actively put my kid around you. And like, it's just been so, so incredibly healing. And it's been, it's just been the deep things of life and also fun and also light and also some nights of drinking too much or, you know, it's just <laughs> out here being human. It's, it's not, there's nothing idealized about the life that we have, but it's, it's truly, it's extraordinarily beautiful to get to give and receive love in all kinds of different ways, whether that's between me and Amanda or between me and friends or between us and our godsons or with our grandmas, to give and receive love out in the open and to be seen and known and celebrated in that place is just profoundly moving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For folks who are listening, who are maybe in some earlier stages of that journey, who are maybe still wrestling with some of these really big questions of you know faith and sexuality and being torn between communities and the heaviness of that. What would you say to those folks? I would say first, like you are a good judge of what you should share with whom and when and why. Um, a lot of people feel compelled to just like come bursting out of the closet or, you know, to, and I would say like, I actually wish I had waited to come out to my family um, because I knew at 16, they actually weren't going to be a safe place, but I had some other people in my life encourage me to do it. And like life happens and you know, it is what it is, but I think for some people it's safer to wait. So tune into yourself and and what you need and follow your instincts. I would also say like, know that if you, if you need to leave a community, if you're not in a supportive space and you can, there will be so, there will be people to catch you on the other side. There will be, there are people that you have never known exist that you've never imagined that you'll grow to love in ways uh, that you couldn't have believed possible. And if you want to hold on to your faith, there will be faith communities that enthusiastically embrace and celebrate you. And there, you're going to still be you. You're not going to completely lose yourself and become an entirely different person. But the more that you really accept and nurture yourself and share yourself with other people, you're going to expand and grow into more of yourself. And yet that self can, will be stronger and softer. And I would just encourage I would encourage a lot of gentleness and to the extent possible where finances allow a lot of therapy and surrounding yourself with as many people who are going to be nourishing and uplifting and to really, really minimize, like turn the volume down on voices that guilt you or shame you or tell you you should do this or should do that because you're, you'll flourish and you'll thrive when you're in a place of, of nourishment. And so seek that out at all costs. It's so important. It's so important. Julie, it is always just so lovely to chat with you. So thank you. Matthias, you are so great. Thank you for really, like, this has been such a labor of love for so many years. And I I really want the people at NPR to take this on and for this to be what you do for the rest of your life because you do such an extraordinary <laughs> job. And I'm just so, I'm so thankful that you have chosen to create this for our community and that you've done the work to, to stay healthy yourself throughout that time and to be able to show up to these conversations in a way that is 
uh, fruitful for other people and not about yourself. It's been really evident and clear. And I've always, I have so, so much respect for you and, and appreciation for you. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Mm, that means a lot. You can pick up a copy of Julie's book, Out Love, a queer Christian survival story, wherever you buy books. And this fall, be sure to tune into Netflix for that documentary, Pray Away. Julie is on Twitter and Instagram at Julie underscore Rogers. And if you want to know more about her work, head over to julierogers.com. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear in the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all, bye! Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.